Welcome to the One Life Podcast, where we have rare but vital conversations about Jesus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Life Podcast. One Life is a startup church here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to build extended families of disciples that live on mission together. My name is Tiffany Ketchum, and here with me is my husband and co-host, Tim Ketchum. Hey, everybody. We are so glad you're listening, and we are on episode, wait for it, 50. 50, wow. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've used an uh, artificial uh, crowd response. Maybe we should do that on the regular. That'd be kind of cool. Like, if you make a really cool point, I can just hit a button. Right. Yeah, we need to have some kind of... Uh, Maybe like a church amen choir or something. Like, <laughs> well... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sometimes I want to push that kind of button when you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> we should have something that would be kind of funny. Yeah, we're on 50, so... The big five Woo! Today we are continuing the story of Jacob and Esau, which are Isaac's sons. And we saw some dysfunction last time in our last episode. But the dysfunction continues in this family, which we will find out. Yeah, it's kind of comforting to see dysfunction in biblical families because so many times you look at people in the Bible and you're thinking, oh, they had it all together and like there are examples. But the larger framework of the story is, of course, you know, you always have to go back and mention Genesis 11, the nations rejected God, and then God chooses Abraham to start from scratch a nation that will walk with him and let them be his God. And finally, when Isaac has, when Abraham has Isaac, you're like, oh man, what's it going to be like? You know, like this family is going to be amazing. This is going to be <laughs> awesome. This is God's family. You know, this is the nation that's going to, he's going to use this nation to bless all the other nations. And it's like you're on the edge of your seat waiting to see what this family's going to be like. And lo and behold, it's, it's, it's like a sitcom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 uh, there's lying, there's, there's even some uh, killing going on. And it's like, wait, I thought this was the family that was going to be the channel of blessing. And instead, they have a really difficult time being the kind of people that God is calling them to be. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's definitely something I think about in this story is that like this is a really important family and God and what he is doing and how he's going to bring blessing to everyone. And yet there's so much dysfunction and you see that all through the Bible, though. So it, it really is comforting for us. And if you do feel like, oh, man, I don't God can't God doesn't want to be with me or he doesn't want me to to be on his team. Mm. Like, he knows I shouldn't be. But really, it's all through the story of the Bible, you know. The people people that are important to the storyline of God and, and what he's doing, they have issues too, just like we all do. So, and <laughs> sometimes, well sometimes way worse, <laughs> honestly. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely comforting. No doubt. Yeah, so uh, something else that's kind of interesting, too, is like, you know, when you read Genesis 1 through 11, it's like this big thousand-foot view. But, man, we are getting into some nitty-gritty details here. You know, like this is very close. It's, it's like somebody's following these people around with a cell phone mm-hmm. and, and videoing they what they're doing. They have a reality TV show. It's, it, it's a reality TV show. That's a great way to say it. And you're getting all the nitty-gritty details. You're getting the conversations, like, in the back room. And it's... 
it, it's a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, we're going to unpack this story of uh, of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, and he is going to unknowingly bless his son Jacob, but he actually wanted to bless his son Esau. And we're going to look at how this is kind of like a parable of the way in which we kind of approach the atonement. And I would, of course, say that when I say we approach the atonement, I mean like there's a view or an approach to the atonement out there. And just like this family, that approach is very dysfunctional and it has some very uh, dark aspects to it. So, Mm -hmm. And in the last episode, we saw Jacob basically take Esau's birthright or Esau gave it to him for a bowl of stew. Yeah. And then a so bowl of red lentil stew, just, if you read the NIV, right? It's like, oh, wow, they, they ate red lentil. I don't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's funny. But um, yeah, but the story kind of continues on in that vein here in Genesis 27. Yeah, and it's it's a really long story, so we're going to read some verses. We'll narrate some of it, and then we'll read some of the other verses. So Sounds good. Yeah, well, let's jump in. Okay, Genesis 27 and verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Okay, so the the image I get here is potentially Rebekah Rebecca is in another room in the tent and she's got her ear up close to the wall of the tent and she's eavesdropping mm-hmm. on the conversation. I don't know if that's what's going on, but that's just the image I get. <laughs> well, uh, the, the walls are going to be thin. so <laughs> That's right. I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with either leather or, uh, you know, fabric walls on a tent. So she, she overhears this conversation and what she goes about doing is she basically tells, uh, uh, Jacob to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna pull a fast one on your dad. I want you to go get two animals from the herd and kill them right now and create a stew out of them. And you're gonna go in and you're gonna get feed this stew to your father, and you're gonna get the blessing that he was intending to give to Esau." Well, uh, Jacob is like, "Hey, this sounds like a great idea, but uh, we have different voices and." My brother Esau is hairy, and I'm not. <laughs> you know, so you like, know. Um, he's he's gonna know. <laughs> he's gonna know. Like, he's gonna know this is not my son's voice, and then he's gonna ask. So, mom says, "Okay, I got a solution for that. After you make the stew, bring the skins of the animals, and we'll put the skins on your hand, as well as on your neck." Okay, now this is kind of weird to me because it's like, who do you know that has really, really hairy hands? You know, so much so that you would reach to touch their hand to see if they had that much hair on their <laughs> hand, right? So it's like, man, it's it's just a weird picture of Esau mm-hmm. having this big scruffy ball of hair on the top of his hand. So that's what uh, Jacob does. 
he puts the animal skin on his hand and on his neck, and he goes in to meet with his father to get this blessing. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 18. Okay, verse 18. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Okay, now, this is a half-truth, okay? So, question, is Jacob the firstborn? Well, technically, no, right? Because Esau is the first one to come out of the womb. But Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, which means, technically, Jacob has a right to be the one who receives the firstborn blessing from the father. Now, this was actually mentioned back in the previous story that you have favorites going on in this family. Clearly. Isaac loved Esau, whereas Rebekah loved Jacob. So they they had their favorites, and apparently they were playing each other off of one another, and there was this rift in the family. This is a very dysfunctional situation where one parent has to advocate for the for this child, or the other parent's advocating for this one, and there's this competition going on. All right, so let's keep reading here. All right, verse 20. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Okay, I just want to pause real quick just to make a quick speculative thought, is that when Jacob says, hey, the Lord provided, he gave me success. He's the one who provided the animal. Think about... Isaac, okay, Isaac is the one who went up the mountain with Abraham, and the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice, okay? Jacob is being very clever here. He's reaching back into Isaac's story in an event where God provided an animal to get Isaac out of a tough spot, and he's saying, hey, it's kind of like that. God sent the animal to me, you know, kind of like what happened in your life, Isaac, (laughs) I mean, there's there's some serious deception going on here. Jacob is one clever dude. Mm-hmm. Well, or his mom. Well, <laughs> yeah, least. his mom could have coached him in that. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know which uh, combination. Okay, verse 24. Are you really my son Esau, he asked? I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. This is a really interesting blessing. It's it's a blessing that's characteristic of blessings that would go to the firstborn son. And something I want to draw attention to here is that when 
Rebecca was having her, those twins, fight each other or kick a lot in her belly, she asked the Lord, hey, what's going on? If everything's okay, why, why is all this movement happening in my womb? And God says to Rebecca, you have two nations in your womb, and the older is going to serve the younger. And so basically, the weird thing about this whole situation is that God already forecasted, this is how it's going to be. But then things weren't evolving that way in the family. And through trickery and deception, Jacob actually weasels his way in. And the thing that God spoke in the beginning actually comes true with the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob. That's just a really weird turn of events where Jacob had to kind of fernagle and deceive and it doesn't excuse Jacob. I don't think Jacob was necessarily thinking, "Hey, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm I'm fulfilling the prophecy that was spoken over me. You <laughs> yeah. know, I, I I have a right to do this. You know, it, it's just a very strange, contorted and twisted, you know, process of God. What God had spoken before actually comes to pass, and God is working through the brokenness and the dysfunction in that family the things that God had already spoken are actually still coming true in spite of all the dysfunction there. Yeah, it definitely is amazing how God can work through really crazy and dysfunctional situations and Mm -hmm. still do really awesome things. No doubt. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears here a little bit because I think this story actually illustrates a particular approach to the atonement that we kind of grind on a little bit here in our podcast. That particular approach is called penal substitution. In this story, Isaac is kind of like God the Father, and we are kind of like Jacob, and we are seeking the Father's blessing. We're seeking salvation. And the way penal substitution talks about the atonement, it basically says that if God the Father actually knew who you were, if he really knew you, if he knew who was in the tent with him, he would never give you a blessing because of your sin, because of what you've done, because of what you haven't done. If the father was seeing correctly, he would never, he would never extend that blessing to you. And so what Jesus does is Jesus comes along and he tricks the father. He covers us and conceals us so that when we come into the Father's presence, the Father doesn't actually see us, He sees Jesus. And therefore, God can give us the blessing, even though He's not actually, in the Father's mind, He's not giving it to us. He's giving it to His other Son. He's giving His faithful Son, the one He really loves. He's treating us as if we were the son that he really likes. And I think this story kind of illustrates the dysfunction of how penal substitution frames the atonement for us. In penal substitution, God does not actually see us. He does not actually interact with us. He doesn't actually bless us. He doesn't extend his blessing to us. Everything that the Father does towards us is based on Him seeing Jesus and not us. 
And this is something that I, that I grew up hearing, actually. I actually have a very vague memory of someone using this story to illustrate penal substitution and saying, you know, it's kind of like the story with, um, you know, Isaac and Jacob. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, uh, some, someone was using it as an illustration to explain how God saves us and the role that Jesus plays in that. And I, I think it's dysfunctional because it sort of creates this barrier and this doubt that if the Father actually really did see me and all of my sin and all of my brokenness, what would his response actually be? Would he recoil and pull away and say, well, I, I would never give you, I, I, I only want to love this son over here. I'm only going to bless them. Like, what are you even doing here? I don't even want you in here. Right. Like, I can't even be around that. I can't even be around you. I, di- I didn't invite you in here. Um, so, you know, there's, there, there's a whole lot of built-in um, baggage, I think, that comes along with that. And it even extends to ideas about, does God actually love me? Or does he love his son? And I just happen to be wrapped up inside of his son. Uh, it, it, it gets very personal. There's some very subtle uh, signals and messages that are sent by this way of approaching the atonement that create a lot of barriers, I think. Uh, and and it, it works in different ways for different people. Sure. Those messages can go deep, though. Especially if you already have some of those messages coming to you from your family, Mm-hmm. from your social circles. In other words, there, there's already signals like that being sent to us uh, that say you're not worthy. If people really knew who you were, they wouldn't love you. Uh, you need to hide that part of yourself because if you, if you show it, you're going to be rejected. And so the penal substitution way of approaching the atonement, it, it, it almost empowers and amplifies that dysfunctional relational framework and it, it, it kind of supercharges it. And it, it's already a struggle to deal with those kind of things in relationships with other people. But then when you start to say, well, that same dynamic is at work in our relationship with God, it's like, wow, well, God is the most important person in my life. And if that's how he relates to me, what does that say about me? What does that does that offer any solution to the brokenness that I'm bringing into that relationship? It it actually doesn't. It it actually, in some ways, it can make it worse, mm-hmm. and it it becomes multi layered then. And instead of just a social layer, now we have a religious layer that that compounds all of that. So, yeah, it definitely makes God the Father not a safe place. No doubt, all all kinds of doubt and suspicion. What does he really think about me? Can I be myself with him? Can I bring my full self into this relationship? And it it really creates this dichotomy between Jesus and the Father, right? Like Jesus ends up in, in penal substitution, Jesus ends up saving us from God. He ends up, uh, you know, concealing us from God. Essentially what Jesus does is he changes the way God sees us, but 
what doesn't happen in penal substitution is that there's actually nothing that takes place to change me. In other words, in penal substitution, the primary activity going on is between Jesus and God, and Jesus is doing something to change the way God sees me. But it doesn't actually do anything to heal my brokenness. It doesn't do anything to address the dysfunction that's already in my life. And so really, it's kind of damage control. It essentially sets up the primary problem to be solved is how God sees us. And then Jesus comes in and fixes that by basically creating a a smokescreen so that we can come to God, but God doesn't actually really see us. The most simple, you know, like we could go in a lot of different directions with this, with how it works out with emotional intelligence, with relational intelligence, how this dynamic distorts someone's relationship with God. But I think the the most simple way to, to kind of hone this in is to say, you know, do, does God actually love me in my brokenness? Does he actually see my sin and still love me? And I think the the message in the scriptures is that yes, he does see us. He does see my sin. He does see me. He sees everything about me. And he still wants to be in relationship with me. And it's not because Jesus is concealing those things. It's not because he's fooled into thinking that I am something that I'm not. Uh, he sees everything that I bring to the table in this relationship. And he still wants to father me. He still wants to invest in love. And he still sees the best in each one of us. And, you know, there's a, there's a passage in Hebrews that kind of alludes to this. It doesn't, you know, specifically address it, but I think it, it gets, gets us close to uh, how the Father interacts with us as his children, even when we're in Christ. And that's in Hebrews 12. We're going to start with verse 3, which says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Okay, now, the, the imagery here is that they're being persecuted, but he's saying, look, you don't have it all that bad. Like, nobody's killing you over this, okay? But you are striving against the power of sin. And verse 5, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, can you say what the word chasten means? <laughs> oh, yeah, the word chasten. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, New King James Version. Yeah. Uh, basically, chastening means discipline. Okay. It means being disciplined by a parent. And so, if a parent doesn't actually see your sin 
or see your immaturity or your deficits, then they can't actually parent you. If, if, if a child looks always completely obedient to a parent, then there's no discipline to take place. But this is saying that God actually does discipline us. He does instruct us. He does warn us. He does rebuke us and correct us, which implies that the Father does see everything in our life that needs to be developed and matured and corrected. And so um, I'm kind of going to this verse just because it's in this framework of God as a Father seeing us as we are and that he needs to see us as we are in order to actually bring us into maturity. It's a part of the relational reality that God needs to have in order to help us become everything he created us to be. The idea that God does not see our sin, that he doesn't see us, he only sees Christ. That he doesn't want to be around us. Yeah, if he actually saw us, he wouldn't mm-hmm. want to be around us. Yeah, it's 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 a fabrication. It, it it's rooted in a dysfunctional understanding of the nature of God and a twisted and contorted version of the gospel. The good news is that God does see us. He sees everything that we are, and He loves every part of what He sees, even the stuff that is not supposed to be there. He doesn't love that, but because he does love us, he's going to work with us to get those things out of our life so that he can mature us. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jesus comes in to help us and empower us through the resurrection to overcome those things. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um, it's not so that he can cover us up and hide us. It's so that he can empower us to overcome these things and... They're working together. Yeah, I, I love how you're framing that around empowerment because, you know, th- there is a phrase in the New Testament primarily in Paul's writings that talks about us being in Christ. And most theologians say that that's about being in, a, in an environment where you are empowered by that person. And it's not about hiding you uh, from God. It's about you getting into an environment where you can really flourish and you start to participate in everything that that person has already accomplished in their life. So it's it, it's kind of like being around somebody who is successful in an area that you want to be successful in. It's it's like an empowering relationship. Yes, and this is really important stuff. So I hope that uh, you were able to take it in and yeah, just ask ask the Holy Spirit for help and your view of God and if there's anything that in your view of God and the way that you see him, if there's anything that's faulty or that needs to be changed. So thank you for listening today, and we are going to wrap it up here. We'll catch you next time.